0: As we prepare to go to the table this morning, would you take your Bibles and just open them to 1 Corinthians 15? I'm going to read you a passage here. Over the next uh, month, every week consecutively, one of the elders will be reading to you from this chapter. So we're going to get through this entire chapter as we are preparing our hearts coming up towards Easter 1 Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter of the Bible. In it, the apostle Paul is addressing a heresy that is afoot um, in the ancient world and is affecting the churches. Part of this comes out of the Gentile belief system called Gnosticism. Won't go into that. Part of it also comes out of the Jewish belief system uh, through the sect of the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. Now, let me clarify, that does, not believe the Sa- that does not mean the Sadducees did not believe in eternal life. They simply did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They believed that when you died and your body went in the ground, that was the last time you would ever see it again. You were done with it. That is not in the New Testament. The New Testament teaches, my friend, your body, if you die before the Lord's return, your body will go down into the ground. But there is coming a day when the Lord will return from the heavens with a shout. And in the final resurrection, every body that has gone into the grave is going to come forth. So Job, writing thousands of years ago, said he had that confidence that although worms ate his body, yet in his flesh, he would see God. We're talking about the resurrection. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, all those things are taught in this chapter. So as we read through this in preparation each week, uh, you know, key in on the key concepts that the scripture is teaching us about resurrection. What is the resurrection from the dead? Now, I'm gonna begin the chapter today in preparation for celebrating the Lord's table, and I'm gonna make a couple comments on it, and then we're gonna pray, bless the elements, and then we will partake together. We're gonna read verses one to 11. Paul says this, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel. What's the gospel? If I ask you, what is the good news? What is the gospel? What is it? Paul is reminding us here what the gospel is. This gospel, he says, I preached to you and you received it. And then he says, and you are standing in it. And he says, and by it you are being saved. That doesn't mean we're not saved at a point in time. He just says there is a process going on in our life where God is bringing us to ultimate salvation in our glorification in the presence of God. We are being saved if, now notice this, what is the mark of a Christian? He perseveres. We've talked about this before. He endures. He remains. He says, and this is the way you know a true Christian, if, You hold fast to the word I preached. In other words, you don't wash out on the journey. God doesn't lose you. He holds you fast. Unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance. Think about this. What is most important in the church? This is first importance. Right? This is the... Top of the list. He says, I received this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sin. He was buried and as we will see this morning in John 10, he picked up his life again. No one took it from him. He laid it down, and then he picked it up on the third day. As he goes on, he says this. He then appeared to Cephas. Now, who is Cephas? It's another name for who? Peter. He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. He then appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, and most of them are still alive. So you could send him an email and say, is this true? You really saw Jesus, right? Check this out. That's why he makes mention of that. Some have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. Then he appeared to James. Now, who is this James? This is his younger brother, his earthly brother. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me as to one who was prematurely born. I was thinking of that when Nina just mentioned this premature birth. And then he says, I am the least of the apostles. Now, just think about this. That phrase, the least of the apostles, ties to this idea that he says, I was like one that was a preemie. Now, premature children born today have a tough road to hoe, don't they? But in the ancient world, they had no road to hoe. Right? It was like a death sentence. I mean, there weren't NICUs. There weren't. I mean, if you were born too premature, you would die. If you were born premature, it would take, I mean, just think of infant mortality in the ancient world in general. It took massive amounts of oversight and care to nurture the life of a preemie. And he's saying, you know, I was like one that was born preemie that the Lord just surrounded and nurtured and took care of to bring me to maturity. Why? Because I was the least of all the apostles. He says, why was I the least of all the apostles? Because I persecuted the church. And then he says, but it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And his grace was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than everyone else. Yet it wasn't me that was laboring. It was God's grace that was laboring through me. And so we see these truths about the resurrection. So as we think about the Lord's table today, I always want to stress this to you. Maybe you're new to the church. Maybe you've been here forever. But let's be reminded. This is a picture of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Your sins are not not forgiven because you walk up here and you pick this up and you eat this bread and you drink this cup. That is not what forgives your sin. It is believing in the message that we just proclaimed. And then this is a picture of it. Jesus' body was torn. His blood was shed because we are sinners. We don't partake of this because we deserve to. We partake of this because we've been forgiven. Remind yourself of that. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. And then as the piano is played, come and serve yourself. And um, after just a few minutes, we'll partake together. And then we will uh, sing a few more songs in worship and study the word today. Father, help us to see that this is what is most important. The gospel that we've received. It's good to come together. It's good to see each other. It's good to fellowship. It's good to be just a family that loves one another and all those things are important and all those things really find their foundation in this truth. It is most important, we know you died for us, that we might be forgiven, that we might know you and dwell with you eternally. And so, Lord, as we, your children, the sheep of your pasture partake of this today, I pray that you would enrich our worship with that knowledge. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10 today. John chapter 10, we're continuing on. Last week, of course, we had missionaries with us, uh, Alex and Nicole Boyle. Uh, going to Namibia, Um, it was wonderful to get to know them, spend time with them, and to just see their heart for what God is doing uh, in Southern Africa. And so we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We left off finishing up with verse 6, and I want to pick up kind of there and going into verse 7, and we're going to read down to verse 21. We won't be going that far today though as we study. So it says in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. And he's talking about the sheep hearing his voice, how the shepherd knows his sheep, uh, how thieves and robbers would climb up another way, all those things that we already studied. This figure of speech he used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus said to them again, And then this is the second time he uses this phrase, amen, amen, truly, truly. He did that in verse 1 when he is beginning this teaching. And now he says, truly, truly, I am saying to you, I am the gate of the sheep. Now, what does that mean? He is the gate to the sheep. So the thieves and robbers go up another way because they don't want to come through him. He is the gate to the sheep, but he is also the gate for the sheep, that they go in and out and they find pasture. He controls that gate. He is the gatekeeper. I am the gate. I am that that door of the sheep. All, and by the way, that word all is not a comprehensive all. But it is in order to draw a contrast between Jesus and these Pharisees. Jesus is not saying that in the history of the world, there was never a shepherd that led my people faithfully. David was a faithful shepherd. So was Moses, he and Aaron, led the children of Israel like a flock through the wilderness, the scripture says. So this is not a comprehensive all. It is an all to draw a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. Remember in the first six verses we saw the characteristic of the sheep is they hear his voice. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate if anyone enters by me he will be saved he will be secure he will have safety he will go in and out and he will find pasture the thief only comes to steal to kill destroy however I am come that they the sheep might have life and having life, have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. Who, the one who does not own the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he doesn't really care for the sheep. And then once again, he says, I am, ego me, I am, I am that I am. Very important, going back to Moses, burning bush, God gives his name, I am that I am. Same phrase Jesus used here to refer to himself, I am that I am, I am that I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep. They are not of this corral, this enclosure. I must bring them to. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock. There will be one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because then it goes right back into this that we already saw about the good shepherd, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I am laying it down of my own accord. Now, these men and these people have heard Jesus articulate on a couple of occasions that he was going to be killed in Jerusalem on a cross. He had begun to break them into this during the last year of his ministry, and yet they never understood it. They never really get it. Once again, he's saying, I'm laying down my life, but I'm going to pick it up again. This, my friend, is going to happen in just a few months. Literally, that we are coming up to the cross. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to pick it up again. This commandment, this charge... I received from my father there was again a division among the Jews because of what he's just said many of them were saying he is a demon he's insane why are we listening to him others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind going back to the man that he had healed in chapter 9. Now, we're not going to talk about the other fold in verse 16. Our attempt today is to get from verse 7 to verse 15. To do that, I want to draw some things about the Good Shepherd. Let's think about the Good Shepherd. When we think about this, we're think, we just think with me about the phrase. And I don't want to bore you with grammar, but let's go there for a minute. The is what is called a definite article. Good is what is called an adjective. An adjective describes what? A noun. The shepherd is the noun. Okay, we're not talking about a verb here. We're not talking about an action. We're talking about a person. It's a noun. Good is describing this shepherd. The definite article tells us he is talking about one specific one. He's not just talking about a good shepherd, he is talking about what? The good shepherd. It's important you note that. Now, we see that in our English Bible and I'm drawing this out because I think it's important. But we don't really get the force of it that is in the original language. The original language writes it differently. It doesn't go definite article, adjective, noun. It goes like this. Definite article, noun, definite article, adjective. And that is a weird construction even in Greek. Okay, that's why I'm noting it. That's not normal. Normally, the way you would convey this kind of thought would be like what we saw in our English. But in the original, when God writes this, every time we come to this phrase, it says, Ego in me, I am the good, the shepherd, or excuse me, the shepherd, the good, the shepherd, the good. Now, why does he do that? Why does God, the Holy Spirit, choose to use a very obscure construction to convey to us a truth about Jesus? Why does Jesus say it this way? I'll tell you why, because it's two things. He is emphasizing, number one, his character, and then secondly, he is distinguishing himself as the only one. He is trying to emphasize something. He is saying, I am The shepherd, the good one. And in so doing, he is distinguishing himself from the Pharisees who we are seeing the conflict with, who were the shepherds of Israel, who were blind leaders of the blind. And Jesus saying, I am the shepherd, the good one. And this is to distinguish. Him as unique in all of human history. He is truly the shepherd who is the good one. Now, when we see the word good, many times we just think of it in terms of like gradations of people who are better than someone else. We don't think of it in an ultimate sense, right? So we say he's a good basketball player. We say, you know, she's a good mother. She's a good cook. And we're not saying that she's a perfect cook, but we're saying she's good. But when we see this word good used as a title and as a designation for God, it's not like just saying, well, he's pretty good at being a shepherd. It's saying this, he is the perfect shepherd and he is good. It is emphasizing that. I've been reading through the Psalms, just really trying to just study through them and worship the Lord in them. And I keep coming to this phrase in the portion of the Psalter where I am, where it says something like this, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is what? You say it? He's good. Now, that doesn't just mean he's good to me. Like, you know, I got a new truck, I got a good bank account and My life is good. Like, he's just good to me. Okay? That's not what it means. It means he's what? He's good. He's perfect. When Jesus is conversing with a man who was very rich in his day, and was trusting in his riches and his ability to keep the law as a basis for and a foundation for his eternal security with God this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says what good rabbi what must I do to inherit eternal life what does Jesus say well thanks for calling me good he said what now He's not here saying he's not God. He's actually trying to draw the guy into an understanding of what he's just said about Jesus. He says to him, why do you call me good? There's no one that is good except to God. In an ultimate sense, the only one who is the good shepherd is this one we study. I am the shepherd, the good. Now, as we consider this good shepherd and what it means that he is good, I want to remind ourselves of the two things that we are seeing in the passage. The good shepherd knows his sheep, and he what? Cares for his sheep. His sheep, then, we've seen this repeatedly, what? Hear. His sheep hear his voice, and they what? Follow His sheep hear his voice and they follow. But he, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. He cares for his sheep. In verses 1 through 6, we studied the idea that he knows his sheep. In verses 7 through 15, we are going to talk about this truth, that he is caring for his sheep. Somebody in the text does not care for the sheep. Who is it? the hired hand. The hired hand doesn't really care for the sheep, he cares for who? Himself. And he flees when the wolf comes, but Jesus cares for his sheep. Now, the third truth, and we won't get to this one today, but we're gonna tie it into the concept of the additional flock that Jesus must bring, is we see that Jesus' example of shepherding becomes a model to the elders of the church and how they are to lead the church. The word pastor comes from a Greek word, which is the Greek word what? Poimen, which means what? A shepherd. That's what it means. He is a shepherd. And so we're going to look at this a little bit more when we look at this again next week. Now let's talk about Jesus caring for his sheep. There are three ways in this text I want to show you that Jesus cares for you. He cares for us, first of all, by leading his sheep to pasture. Secondly, he cares for us by protecting his sheep from predators. Thirdly, Jesus cares for his sheep by laying down his life, his soul. we Well, look at that for his sheep. Three things I want to just draw you to this morning in this passage about Jesus and how he cares for us. The sheep of his flock. The sheep of his pasture. Number one, he brings us to pasture. Number two, he protects us from predators. And number three, he purchases us. He lays down his life for us. So let's go into it. Jesus leads his sheep to pasture. Now, I want to just think about this one for a minute. If you will notice with me, there's kind of a mixed allegory or figure of speech here because Jesus goes from being the good shepherd to also being the what? The gate. He is controlling access. And access is through him. And if you will notice this, what Jesus said, let's go to it again. Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I am saying to you, I am the gate to the sheep. Nobody gets to the sheep unless they come through me, he says. And I am the gate for the sheep. It is through me that you go in and out and find pasture. So he says that I am the door to the sheep. All who came before me, I already mentioned this, this is not comprehensive, are thieves and robbers. This goes back up to verse 1 when he says this man who is a thief and robber doesn't try to come in through the gate, he climbs up another way. Here's another way. And so this thief, now remember the word thief speaks of someone who is just opportunistic. Maybe he's hungry, he's working alone, he's stealing. A robber, on the other hand, is a word which speaks of somebody who is a bandit, who is like in an organized sense, working with a group of men to take and to steal. So these two are not actually synonymous. They actually speak of two kind of different classifications of thieves or those who steal. There is the thief and the bandit. But he says the sheep would not listen to them. The sheep hear the voice of the thief, they run from him. They don't know his voice. I am the door. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He'll have security. He'll be safe. And because of that, he will go in and out. He will find pasture. The thief, on the other hand, comes only to steal, to kill, destroy. I am come That they may have life and have it abundantly. Now let's think about what is the abundant life of a sheep. Put your life into the mind of a sheep. Be a you for a minute. What's a good day for a you? Plenty of pasture. Right? That's a good day for a sheep. A good day for a sheep is to look out of the gate and to see before it a verdant pasture full of green brows and a nice creek that is flowing quietly by, and just a good day to go and to graze and to lay in the shade of the tree. That's the abundant life for a sheep. To feed well, to be safe, to be secure, and to just enjoy eating. How many of you like to eat? Right? How many of you like to eat? That's a good day for a sheep. Now, if you think about it, and you think about being a shepherd and being a sheep, let's think for a minute about what is the main responsibility of a shepherd? What is the main responsibility of a shepherd? Jesus says to Peter in John 21, he asks him a question, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter says, well, you know, I can't really say I have agape love for you, but I do. I I am fond of you. He's being sincere. He's being honest. Whereas before, he was the cockamamie guy who said, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You're going to deny three times you know me. Now, Peter has been massively humbled, hasn't he? He says, Lord, you know I like you. It's really what he's saying. So Jesus says what to him? Feed my sheep feed my sheep. What does it mean to feed sheep? Did you know that actually probably when I say that it gives you the wrong idea? At least it does to me because when I think about feeding the sheep or I think about feeding the cattle, I'm thinking about going and getting a bale of hay out of the barn, putting it on the truck and going along and putting down a feed line, right? That's kind of the way we think. Feeding But in Palestine, in the ancient world, they didn't put up hay, did they? They also didn't have a long winter to prepare for, so they didn't store and stockpile large amounts of feed to feed an animal through the winter. They'd maybe have some. So he's not saying like, go and get a bale of hay and give it to the sheep. He's saying what? Tend my sheep. Take my sheep to grazing. Sheep are extremely efficient grazers. I joke about sheep all the time because I'm a cattleman, but sheep are much more efficient than cattle ever were. A cow stuffs its face for about 10 to 12 hours a day. A sheep, on the other hand, does so for four or five, and that's good enough. A sheep thrives on about 4% of its body weight daily as food. Now, I don't know what we thrive on, but you think about your body weight and how much it takes to sustain you. But a sheep eats you know, about 4% of its body weight, maybe 10, 10 pounds of feed, gets a sheep by just fine. Not a cow. Lactating cow on pasture will eat in excess of 100 pounds of a feed a day to sustain its life. It's not an efficient grazer. Sheep are massively efficient. Uh, if you think about sheep, you know, you just think about various aspects of a sheep and its life. You know, it, it, it's not dumb. Have you ever heard somebody say sheep are dumb? When somebody says that, they just don't know sheep. They haven't been around them. They just show that they're being dumb, right? Because sheep are not dumb. Sheep are smart. They are very smart, but they are also very fearful. They live in a herd and they thrive in a herd. They are efficient grazers. They need to be taken to grazing because they will overgraze and kill out an area. So they have to be tended. Um, They thrive with good pasture and water. You have to watch them though for health issues, don't you? Parasites are a big deal to sheep and will render them unable to reproduce. Um, Parasite loads. A lot of things that we can learn about sheep. We can learn a lot of things about shepherds here too and about their responsibilities to tend for sheep. But as we think about this, the big point that I want to just draw ourselves into and this truth is this. Jesus wants to give us An abundant life. He gives us life. And then he wants us to have an abundance. And in Psalm 23, it says what? David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because he is with me. All those truths that ring so powerful in our mind when we go through difficulty and we think about the Lord as our shepherd. Jesus says in another place, Man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he owns. The abundant life is not stuff. It's not having more stuff at the end of your life than you had at the start of it. That's not how you know whether you had an abundant life. An abundant life is a life that is lived in the Lord and in his care listening to his voice and following his will. And the more my life is conformed to the will of God for me, as I see in his word, the more my life abounds. So Jesus leads His sheep to pasture. Second thing is he protects his sheep from predators. Now, there are three enemies of the sheep that are mentioned in this text. Let's look at them quickly. Number one, there's the thief and the robber. His goal, there are three things it says to the thief and robber. Number one, he wants to steal. He steals in order that he might kill, that he might destroy the livelihood of the man that he steals from. He is not only killing the sheep, he is seeking to destroy the livelihood of the person that he is stealing from. The motive of the thief is to build his own flock isn't it that's why he's stealing he's rustling these sheep in order that he might have a herd but the sheep will not hear him and will not follow him he comes to steal to kill to destroy by the way all three of these enemies are the shepherds of Israel during the days of Jesus And they then speak to us how all through church history, there are enemies of God's people that fulfill these three categories of predation. One is a thief and a robber. The second one is the hired hand. The hired hand is not actively out to kill the sheep. The hired hand simply abandons and flees. He sees the wolf coming. He sees the danger. And rather than putting himself on the line, he runs away. His motive is self-serving. He's in it for self. And so he's not the true shepherd. And then the last one is the wolf. And the wolf seizes and scatters. He seizes a sheep. And as he seizes a sheep, In an opportunistic way, he comes up on the herd of sheep and he grabs one. And when he does so, all the other sheep do what? They flee. They scatter. And there's no shepherd there to take care of them because the hired hand has left. And so there is a motive of just simply the pleasure of destroying. Yes, maybe the wolf wants to fill its belly, but it's much more than that. The wolf is just a notorious Predator that kills out of enjoyment. And so that is what we see in the text. There are three predators. You know, there are predators in Israel. We don't often think about it in those terms. In the days of David, David told Saul, when he goes out in battle against Goliath, he says, I can't wear your armor into battle because I'm not tested in it. He said, I'm going to take my sling. Because with my sling, When a bear came against the sheep, I killed it. When a lion came, I killed it. I did it with my sling and with my staff. I don't need your sword. God will fight for me. So there were lions. You know, those lions were an Asiatic lion. They were, you know, documented through human history. They died out and were killed off during the days of the Crusaders. They were bears. Syrian brown bears that are a subspecies of our black bear. There are still bears in parts of northern, uh, like Mount Hermon and going north up into the Caucasus and up into Turkey. These are like a subspecies of our black bear. There's no longer bears down in Palestine proper, but there are wolves. Uh, They're they're an Arabian wolf, not as big as our wolf, probably more along the, the line, the size of one of our coyotes. They're kind of a solitary animal. They don't live in packs like our wolves. They, they're they more solitary. They kill in an opportunistic way, and they still go out into the hills of Sinai, and they find sheep, and they kill them. And so these wolves have always been there, and he is using this as a picture of false teaching in the church and those who would bring falsehood into Christ's church. And so Jesus says in Matthew 7... He says, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but on the inside, they are what? Ravenous wolves. And He says, you will recognize them by your fruits. Jesus also said in another place, he said to the apostles, I am sending you out like sheep in the middle of wolves. So be cunning as a serpent and harmless as a dove. So we talking about false teaching. You know, there's false teaching all around us. Some of it arises from within the church. Some of it arises from the culture. And one of the tasks of the shepherd and under-shepherd in the church is to draw attention to false gospels and false or errors, let's just say it that way, errors that are abounding in our culture that will destroy your faith and lead you far from God. And to be aware of those things and be attentive to them. The third thing that we see this morning, and we'll bring this to a close, is Jesus purchases his sheep. He lays down his life. Notice with me in the text. In numerous occasions in this passage, Jesus says this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. The word life there is an interesting word. It's not normally translated life. In the Bible, it is normally translated soul. It's the Greek word suke. We get the word psychology from that. Psychology is the study of the soul. That's what it is. That's when you think of that field of learning that is out there. It's meant to be the study of the soul. He lays down his soul. That's important. Jesus doesn't just die for us. He lays down his soul. He's not just talking about his physical body there. He's talking about the totality of his person, his emotion, your soul. When you think about your soul, we're talking about your innermost being, who you are. And he's saying he is laying down not just his life, but his soul. Everything he is to purchase us. This is tender. This is rich. Jesus purchases his sheep. Jesus tells us in another place in the Gospels. He says, I lay down my life, my soul, as a ransom to purchase you. If you just think about human history for a minute, many people in human history have laid down their life for someone else, right, on behalf of someone else. Soldiers do it. Sometimes, um, you know, emergency responders do it. They lay down their life. In the Book of Romans, it tells us this you know, for a good man, someone would dare to die. Someone's a good person, someone would dare to die for him. But it doesn't happen very often. But then he goes on in the text says this but God demonstrated his own love to us in this, that he laid down his life for us while we were yet sinners to purchase us from sin. We were his enemies and he died for us. He laid down everything he was for us in a state of rebellion. So he laid down his life to purchase us. He laid it down. Now here is how Jesus laying down his life is different than anybody else laying down his life. Jesus says this, I lay down my life, we read it this morning, in order that I may pick it up again. Nobody takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down, and the Father gave me authority to pick it up. The resurrection is what distinguishes the death of Christ from any other death. Yes, he is an innocent substitute for us, never having sinned, bearing our sin on the cross. But if he had gone into the grave and had not come forth triumphant, we couldn't be saved. You'll see this delineated in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says without the resurrection, there's no salvation. He laid down his life for you, for me, to purchase us from sin. He picks up his life again to live it on our behalf to intercede for us and to bring us to God and to build another flock, as we'll see next week. So he lays down his life. We are unworthy of Christ, but because of Christ, we have great worth. He is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we say that so many times glibly. Help us to understand the truth of it that you are truly good. That your goodness distinguishes you from every other person that has been good to us. For you are good. Thank you for protecting us for leading us to pasture, for purchasing us from sin. And, Father, may we hear your voice and follow you this day. In Jesus' name.